In July of 2017, in just our second podcast episode, TSP002, The Value Crisis, From Dollars to Democracy, Why Numbers Are Ruining Our World, Harry and I invited today's return guest, Andrew Welch, almost exactly two years after having read the book myself, before meeting with Andrew at a local cafe to discuss what was, for me, a very significant and personally kind of vindicating read. It felt like decades of conversing with family, friends, and acquaintances alike had been well captured, summarized, and put to paper. I would further add that the meeting on that July day in 2015, coupled with my only granddaughter's birth two months earlier, were two of the biggest reasons why I decided to start this podcast. This is the closing segment of TSP002, which will be followed by today's TSP148 with our guest, Andrew Welch. If you're frustrated as an individual, well, you can't change the system yourself. You can't enforce a government that's going to take a different role. But you can try and search for balance in your own life for a start. And when you have that awareness and when you start looking for that balance, you will start to meet other people that were also searching for that balance and so on. And and it can only grow. So what's next? What's the sequel called? Beneath the Planet of the Value Crisis. (laughs) You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 148, The Undefinable Spirit, Andrew Welch, Our Second Chance. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Welcome to another episode of The Undefinable Spirit, which is actually part one of a three-part trilogy with, I'm happy to say, our return guest and local writer, author, and voice actor, Andrew Welch. Andrew also wears many other hats, including the role of town crier for the nearby town of Caledon. He's a community activist, a volunteer Red Cross emergency responder, and a fervent supporter of UBI, which we'll delve into further in the course of today's conversation. Andrew has recently penned a sequel to the first book, The Value Crisis, which was published in 2015, and was the subject of his first appearance on this podcast in July of 2017, which we recorded in Andrew's home basement. That podcast is TSP002 and is accessible through the archive section of thesillpodcast.com or thesill.ca. And we suggest you listen to that podcast for a more informed overview on today's exchange. Harry and I have also either mentioned or paraphrased Andrew in previous podcasts. And in particular, we included an eight-minute audio segment on Andrew's views on UBI, featured in last year's TSP 122 COVID-19, What is a Life Worth? Andrew's second book, titled Our Second Chance, will be the focus of our discussion today and for the following two podcasts. Harry and I have read both books and found them interesting, informative, and thought-provoking, and we believe very timely. So, it's with great pleasure and a good deal of curiosity that we greet today's returning guest, Andrew Welch. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Hey, Andrew. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Glad to be here. Welcome back. (laughs) Yeah. So, Andrew, before we begin to unveil the essential elements of your latest labor of love, or at least that's how it felt when I was reading it, I'd like to ask you to give a quick synopsis of your first book, The Value Crisis, and how and or why it led you to writing this one. Okay. Uh, The Value Crisis was an exploration of how we measure value as humans. And it was essentially a discovery that I had about certain inconsistencies in my life, I guess. I observed my behavior and reactions to certain life events as being peculiar that I thought numbers, being a mathematician, were kind of the answer to everything, and they were the most rational way to approach life. And I realized that there were two different ways of measuring value. One was by number, where more is always worth more, and non-numeric measures of value that didn't have any of those properties. Those are the sort of the human values, the the idea of, of happiness or justice or well-being or health. And you couldn't really stick a number on that. Really, more wasn't always worth more. So you had a sense of sufficiency sometimes. But I looked around me at society and I realized that all of our governments and a lot of our industry and so on was driven by this idea that more is always worth more. And I thought, 
geez, maybe this is what's getting us into trouble with climate change, mm. economic disparity, species degradation, and so on. It all seemed to be kind of tied into that. And I thought, well, I can see that both value systems have merit, but I think we're kind of falling out of balance. Mm. And that was our value crisis. Right. And you felt that that wasn't enough, ultimately, laying out the landscape of where our value systems live and the matrix in which they live. You felt that something else was needed, and that's why you wrote the second book? Well, the first book, I wasn't intending to write a book. I just was trying to gather my ideas and sort them out, organize them in my head, and it just grew. And people said, wow, you got a book here. Mm -hmm. It was describing the problem. I think that what really inspired the second book was the idea that a lot of people were reading the book saying, okay, I think I get it, so what do we do now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I didn't really propose any solutions in there. What would you do? So I kind of tackled the second book. The subtitle of the second book is How to Change Course and Solve the Value Crisis. So it's a sequel. Mm -hmm. and today, I think we wanted to really focus on UBI. If there was ever a time for it, my own feeling on this is it's right now with what's happening right now. And you're, uh -huh. you've been working with the Red Cross for a number of years as an emergency responder. You've had firsthand experience with situations where UBI would have been a good implementation. Yeah, that was a learning for me that I was able to observe in 2010 and a few years before that, a really clear juxtaposition of the way in which we approach disaster. Because in my line of work volunteering with the Red Cross, I experienced something in Fort McMurray with the fires there where they had the largest single distribution of humanitarian aid in the history of mankind, as far as they know, mm -hmm. where within about 48 hours, millions of dollars went to people who needed it immediately because they had registered with the Red Cross. 88,000 people or so had evacuated from Fort McMurray. And they just said, we have all this money from Canadians. How are we going to get it to the people who need it? Right, let's run the math. Great, we decided that each and every person who left could get, I think it was $600 right away to immediately deal with expenses. And they didn't ask, you know, what was your needs? What kind of eligibility should you have? They just said, everybody who was there has some claim to an amount. And then I thought, well, that was really cool. I appreciated later that, as a caseworker, we would work with families and we'd say, right, you've had your base aid. Now let's talk about what your actual needs are. And we did all kinds of assessments on how big the family was and that kind of thing and whether they had places to go to or not. But that was secondary. And then when COVID-19 came along and the government said, whoa, we've got to help everybody immediately because we've just shut down the economy. And they said, well, hmm, how can we do that? Well, we can develop this Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit Fund. And if you were working previously, you could get a certain amount, but you'd have to apply for it. And then we'd assess whether you were eligible. And that'll go through a few weeks while we think about that and so on. And I thought, geez, you know, that's not really the best approach. Why didn't they consult people mm. who deal with disasters all the time? And about the same time, that was when I started reading about guaranteed basic incomes, where people were essentially saying, hey, if you can give health care questions unasked, no questions, just you need a, you got a broken leg, there's your health care. Why don't we help people that way just mm -hmm. with the basic essentials of life? That would be what I'd be interested in hearing more about. What are the pros and cons? Where is all this resistance coming from? And the people that do want to see it implemented are also frustrated at what you just stated. I think we've actually been asking this question for over 400 years. Thomas More was the first person to say, hey, why don't we give people enough money to survive so that they don't have to starve if for any reason they break their leg and they can't work or whatever. But what happened was we evolved into coming up with systems, welfare and this kind of thing, ways of helping out the poor and there was this constant back and forth of, well, how do we justify that? Well, how do the people justify their claim to that? And it became a thing where essentially if they were working, 100% of that money might get clawed back. 
it became a question of why do these people deserve this when I don't get that? A whole lot of baggage seemed to be coming around welfare. And I don't think a guaranteed basic income or a universal basic income is welfare. It's an awesome tool for reducing poverty, but it shouldn't be directed at solving poverty. I think it's really a tool, a mechanism to take society to the next level of evolution in civilization where we say, you know what? You don't have to be absolutely working 40 hours at two, three different jobs in order to feed yourself. You won't starve if for any reason you can't do that. If you're a middle income earner and you're in an abusive relationship, you don't have to be stuck with that money earner mm-hmm. just because you have no way of paying the bills if you leave the house. Mm-hmm. Right. In the first book, The Value Crisis, you outlined three value matrices that operate in the human being, the investor, um, the consumer, consumer, and the citizen. So can you talk about how universal basic income sits inside the three of those value systems? Yeah, I think that we tend to think of money matters as falling into the exclusive realm of the consumer and the investor. So if you want to consume, you have to earn that right. And the consumer is the one that looks after our immediate needs. If you want to look after your future needs, you bring in the investor who is the one that saves for the rainy day, that puts it all away and so on. And the citizen is the one that sort of governs the behavior of those other two and looks after other people. The example I often use is what would you do with $50? Would you spend it as a consumer? Would you save it as an investor or would you give it away? And I think that all three of those options have equal happiness, that we all can experience happiness by doing each of those three things. So what I think a GBI does is it changes the whole nature of how the investor works, because right now, probably our greatest fear in society right now is our concern for running out of money in our future. The idea of losing our job, the idea of not having enough money for retirement, that's our new being attacked by a wild animal or being killed by the neighborhood tribe fear. Mm -hmm. It's almost universal. And so we panic about that. We've got to make sure we have enough money set aside just in case for that rainy day, whatever. A guaranteed basic income changes your whole perspective of how you think about your future. You think, all right. It's now been decided that being able to eat and being able to survive is a given. Mm -hmm. And we can now think about other ways of saving up money to actually use it for specific things, rather than thinking, geez, am I going to have to hold on to that just in case I lose my job, whatever. Doesn't that kind of, in some respects, fly in the face of the typical capitalist competitive economy matrix that we've been living in for a long time now? Oh, I don't think so, because the same guarantee that I get as an individual that I will be able to eat is also a guarantee to the capitalists that people will be buying their food, Uh right? right? Right, right. That money doesn't just go to me, and that's a common misconception, I think, of any basic income scheme is they think the money is going from the government or from the people to this person. No, the money has to go from that person somewhere. And so what you're talking about is instead of relying on the so-called uber rich to drive the economy, to create jobs, to do all those things, you're now relying on the people who are spending that money immediately to drive the economy. You know that there is going to be an economy because you know the money is going around. And that's the key, isn't it? Because really, the economy is based on money circulating. Having lots of money means nothing if it's not circulating. But let me ask you this. Under the current circumstances, you're getting unemployment insurance or welfare or something. You are still spending that money in the economy. How is it different? Well, it's different because you would be probably gearing down the welfare and the, the unemployment insurance kind of thing. That kind of support is not as necessary, obviously, if you have a basic income. And in fact, a lot of the people on the left 
say, whoa, we don't want a basic income because we're worried that they're going to claw back all the other services and so on. Well, of course, you've got to keep things in balance and so on. If you have different ways of looking after people. But what it becomes then is that it's no longer tied to all of the conditions that we normally put on welfare or unemployment insurance. So if you're a student that wants to go on and further your studies, you don't have to look for a job in order to find that because you're not eligible for unemployment insurance when you're just leaving university. You haven't worked yet. So that doesn't count. If you're an artist and you want to create things that are important to you, but people say, well, (laughs) artist, go get a job, that doesn't apply in the unemployment insurance side. If you're somebody who wants to retrain and retool yourself and you could be working in a job, but you say, I don't want this job anymore. This is a job in, say, the petroleum industry and I want to learn new skills that get me out of that. You're not eligible for unemployment insurance because I say, well, you just quit. You don't get that when you quit, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. With welfare, there's all these applications you have to go through. You have to prove that you need it. And I think it's more than just the money. This is one of the interesting things. Mm -hmm. They just had a two-year study in Stockton, California, where they took a large number of people in poorer income neighborhoods, randomly chosen, and they gave them $500 a month. Now, $500 a month isn't going to take you anywhere. No one's going to live on $500 a month. But the gesture had amazing impacts. People were in hospital less. They were getting more employment, more full-time employment. They were improved outcomes in all kinds of social measures simply because they had an extra $500 a month. I don't think it was the money. I think it was the statement that society was making to them saying, you know what? you're worth it. Simply because you're alive, we're going to recognize that you have potential. And so entrepreneurs, an entrepreneur, a perfect capitalist saying, I want to be able to take risks. They know they're not betting the whole farm because they have something, a safety net to fall back on. And Mm -hmm. so they will take greater risks. It's not just that. For me, the significance of UBI, there's another factor, and that is how we in general view people in our society. To me, what UBI does, it removes the punitiveness of not having ambition. Nicely phrased. And I say that because there's nothing wrong. Ambition is a great thing. If it stresses you to the gills, I don't see the significance of it. However, people would argue that in many cases. But to me, what's important about UBI is that, like you said, it doesn't give you enough to live the high life. It gives you the basics, the essentials, and barely that. So it's not like it's removing the motivation to improve or to improve on what you have. It's just that it's not penalizing you if you choose to live a a lifestyle that is not always chasing money or chasing ambition or more things. And in many ways, it allows people with great talent as well who do not have that ambitious capitalist type of mentality but have no less talent, in fact, often more, that can be utilized by virtue of taking care of the basics instead of saying, like you just said in your comment earlier, oh, he's an artist, get a job. Yeah. As if his work or her work has no value. Yeah. I think we tend to nowadays more and more think of precisely that, that the job is what gives people value and it becomes everything about that person. It becomes their purpose and so on. Whereas really what we should be thinking about is Why aren't we working fewer hours a week? I think we've got ourselves into this cycle where we have more jobs in order to grow the economy, in order to have more jobs, just so we can keep people in a job. We have to grow the economy simply to create jobs. Mm. What the heck are we doing? Right. There's no limit and there's no end to it because you're constantly chasing. Well, that's the whole premise of the banking system, isn't it? Yeah. Interest rates. Absolutely. Another sector of society that this would affect is sitting right here at this table. I'm 70 years old. I've been collecting CPP, OAS, for three years. And because I've been a freelancer most of my life and a poverty-stricken writer, (laughs) (laughs) my monthly stipend is tiny. If I hadn't found my beautiful wife and spouse who works in a full-time job, and is able to support our household, 
Literally, I would be on the streets right now. I would not be able to afford to live in this small town we live in right now in Orangeville here. I would not be able to afford it. So having that extra money come in for someone like me would be an incredibly important thing. And I think there are lots of people in my position. Absolutely. And see what he just said, though? First of all, I admire his honesty. However, I take some issue with, not by what he said, but it's almost like he has to defend his position. Yeah. It's like saying my spouse or my partner or whomever I'm getting support from, they have more value than I do because. Yeah. This is not in any way to belittle um, because I agree. I'm in somewhat of a similar situation. Mine is more by design. I had the option not to live the way I'm living. I opted for it, so there's a consequence that goes with it. But it bothers me, not just Harry, anybody that I meet, because I meet some some great people who do fantastic work, which is very, very beneficial to the community, to their families. I'll just use the example of mothers. Well, this is the thing, and it's the most important thing that comes out of that is when you say these people have more value because they have a job, they actually have monetary value. Right. They produce monetary benefit to society. But in fact, if you look at what happened during the pandemic, the essential workers, they were the ones that were the cashiers, the people cleaning the hospital hallways and so on, the delivery people. They were the ones that we claimed were essential and had huge value to society, but they're the ones we pay the least. Exactly. Right. Exactly. We're not even recognizing the true values to us with our salary. Right. So this time of COVID is really an opportunity to reevaluate our values and to actually put in balance the contributions that we see people making in society. Mm -hmm. When you say the pandemic and so on as being an opportunity, it's also a 2020 hindsight, if you will, that if we had had some form of basic income two years ago, Mm-hmm. When a disaster like this hits, it's a no-brainer. Right. There's no applications. There's no assessments. There's no buildings full of public servants trying to determine whether you're eligible or not or how much you should be getting. Everyone's already getting it. Nobody's getting double because it's all driven by your social insurance number, what have you. They right. say, oh, we're in a pandemic. No problem. We'll just tweak the value up 30% and everyone's covered. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the logistical side. So I would suggest that the other side of that is equally, if not more important, you've removed a lot of the stress You've removed the concern that people have when these things hit. And we can be manipulated with greater ease when we're in that situation. Oh, of course. So what ends up happening is everything gets exacerbated. It's not just the financial and the logistical, the bureaucracy that's involved in actually administering what you're suggesting. It's people's state of mind. If you're coming from a position of calm and not having immediate concern, you totally respond, react differently. Absolutely. So now let's take that concept and apply it to some of the other great challenges that we're faced with, let's say climate change. Now you've got a whole population that knows that their job, their individual job is their survival. Without it, they're dead or they're out on the street or what have you. Mm -hmm. And you have a government that comes along and says, okay, in order to address this climate change, we're going to stop cutting down these trees over at this pulp and paper mill. And everyone says, whoa, that's my job. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't care about climate change when you're starting to put my survival Mm -hmm. on the line. And so the government Mm -hmm. backs off, says, oh, okay, sorry, 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 we'll we'll come up with something else. You see that across every single political platform, whether it's Mm -hmm. the the, the left, the mid uh, center, the right, it's all about jobs. Because they know that at the end of the day, that's the one thing that's in common with everyone. And if they are held hostage by jobs, they can't take action on anything. Because whatever you do, it's going to affect somebody's job. Right. The other possible spinoffs of a UBI, in my view, and you can chime in on this, is less strife in households. Domestic abuse would go down, I would think, when the people are out of work. That's when you see domestic abuse rise. Women who need to get out of domestic abuse situations who have no money to work with, Mm -hmm. right, can have something to work with. These are practical things. If a job equals survival, then all work, at least for those people who are in that position, is forced labor. You don't have a choice.
there's a certain segment of political society that would be most likely to push against the idea of UBI. Can you talk about how UBI can actually mesh with the ideological agendas of all left, right, and center? Well, this is the interesting thing because it's an idea that appeals to the full spectrum of political thought. It was Milton Friedman who came up with the idea of actually introducing a UBI type thing in the United States 50 years ago. They passed it through Congress. They were on the verge 50 years ago of having this throughout the United States. And the reason is that if you look at the thinking from Milton Friedman and his kind of approach, it was, why are we letting the government run our lives when we could be putting money in the hands of the people and let them make their choices. This is a very appealing thought to the people on the right. Why are we letting the government choose who gets welfare and where they spend it and so on? Why not give it to the people and let them decide and let free economies reign? Mm. So it's an apolitical idea, is what you're saying. In, a way. in some respects, it is. Or, or it's a multi-political idea. Yeah, like it, yeah. Right? But the caveat, of course, is that if you have support across the entire spectrum, you also have opposition across the entire spectrum. Mm. Because for the same reasons that people don't like it, you just flip the coin to the other side. And going back to those three things that Harry brought up at the beginning, which was the premise of your first book, which was the consumer, citizen, and investor... Are those three things part of the problem in the acceptance of UBI? Would any one of yep. those three things represent an opposition to UBI? The most obvious opposition to any basic income program is where's the money going to come from? Right. And so I guess your consumer or your investor might say, whoa, that's my money. Right? Right. And so if you've got a good income coming in and you don't see any value to yourself by getting a basic income, and if you focus on it going to the lower classes, then you're going to say, where is it going to come from? And why do those people get to get it? And they're going to spend it on drugs and they're going to stop working and that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in that sense, I guess you are going to see opposition on those numeric grounds. Yeah. I see the single biggest opposition to this. What you just described is the thought that you're giving money away like to a lazy person or you're demotivating people from working, which I think is a fallacy. Yeah, I think from what you just said just now, a thought occurred to me that in a sense, we do tend to give huge amounts of money away, but we give it away at the top. Right. We don't give it away at the bottom. We're happy to see billionaires get extra incentives to create jobs where we give them tax-free land to build their new plant in order to get the economy moving. We turn a blind eye to their offshore accounts and so on. We create huge income models where they can earn money at a rate much higher than any of us can earn it simply because they're creating jobs. So we're already giving it away. It's just we're giving it away at the top. And most of that money is getting socked away. It's not going back into the economy. Mm -hmm. So in very simple terms, UBI is offering a redistribution plan. I think in some ways it is, but I think to perhaps mollify the concerns of the wealthy, I would see it as being less an income distribution plan in some respects, because even if you put up the tax rate on the wealthy, even if you move them from, I don't know, a 50% tax bracket to a 70%, I would see the growth in the economy being such that it would probably be offset and they wouldn't be earning any less. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly all of that money is being dropped right into the economy and people who could never afford a second car or a cell phone or whatever are suddenly getting it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't think anybody at the top is going to be hurting from this. Let me ask you a bit about history and future. Do we have a sense for any sort of precursors of what UBI means? So that's part one. And then part two will be, what happens if this idea is just ignored? Where are we headed? What's the worst case scenario? I guess in some ways there are certain parallels in history. I think that when you had the Middle Ages and feudalism and so on, you had peasants who worked the land. They worked the land that didn't really belong to them. It belonged to the feudal lord. But in a sense, the feudal lord was absolutely responsible for looking after them and making sure that their needs were met. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I haven't 
got any particular expertise on this, but I wonder what the mindset of a peasant might have been in terms of how much they worried about the future because the future was fairly predictable for them. I don't think a feudal peasant ever worried about losing their job or not being able to survive because they were part of a community that, in a sense, looked after their needs. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that anybody would choose that life now, but maybe that's a parallel that would work. Well, even in in tribal communities, would you not think that people would tend to make sure everyone in the community was at least cared for and survived. This is one of the aspects of the book, in fact, that another aspect of a different section talking about the investor is what do you invest in? There's an old story that's probably true. I think it came up in some of her lectures that Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, was asked, what's the first indication of civilization? How do we know? Is it pottery? Is it a little shard of something that you find in the ground? She said, yeah, it would be finding a human femur that had healed after it was broken. Mm. Because she said to her, that meant that somebody had looked after that person and had cared for that person. In the animal kingdom, you break your leg, you're dead, right? There's no way you're going to be going out foraging for your own food. Mm -hmm. If you're a prey animal, you're going to be taken out first thing by the predators and so on. So the simple finding of a human bone that had healed showed that someone was looking after you. And what I mean, relating that back to the investor, is that it's quite possible, I think, for us to invest in those values, invest in our social circle. Instead of socking money away for the day when we can't work anymore, if we spend a good portion of our lives giving to others, helping others, working to develop social networks, no one's going to starve in that kind of community. You chose to get out of the so-called workforce at the age of 39. So these things that you're writing about, these things that you're talking about right now, you're actually living them. Mm -hmm. This is not just gobbledygook for you to pen on paper. Right. So these things that you're discussing today, the UBI, the concept of the consumer, the investor, and so on, tell us in practical terms how you are experiencing these things or how you have experienced these things in the last 20 odd years? Yeah, it's a tricky question because one of the challenges I'm wrestling with now as I sort of go through the final edits on this thing is I wanted to supply a concrete example. Anybody who's read my first book will know that it's based on stories from my own personal life that I used to arrive at my conclusions and so on. And so I'm struggling with that because as I write stories that come from my own personal life and stories from my own unique perspective, the downside of that is people go, wait, whoa, I'm not retiring at 39. I'm never going to do that. This doesn't apply to me. So I'm struggling with how to provide concrete examples and evidence that there is merit to some of these ideas without saying, hey, it's just me and it's not going to apply to you. So how have I done that? I did that by partially, I mean, you can adopt a different value system, but you're still living in the real world that uses the old value system. So the first part of that is that I was fortunate enough that I was never a great consumer. So when I was doing pretty good work for pretty good money, I never spent it. So I was able to set aside enough that I was able to eliminate some of the things that would force me into that lifestyle. In other words, I set up my own guaranteed basic income. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got myself mortgage-free. And God help us if anyone could do that now under the current housing market. Mm-hmm. So that was a number of years ago. And then I realized I don't need all of the money that I'm making. I'm not spending it. I'm not consuming and I'm finding myself stressed out with certain kinds of work, I'm going to stop taking on work that stresses me out. Mm -hmm. So my retirement didn't mean that I stopped working. I'm a workaholic. I can't stop working. But I stopped feeling the need and the stress to take on stuff that I didn't want to do. And the second step to that, I guess, is to lower my needs. Mm -hmm. So I adapted my income to meet my needs, not my needs adapting to my income. So in the last few years, I've been living on less than 12000 a year. Mm-hmm. I still work. I still need money coming in a little bit, but I've been sucking away at the savings a bit as well. But have you, in fact, not worked less? Oh, God, no. I've worked more. Right. Or, or equally amount. Yeah. And I think that if I look at even, you mentioned earlier that I do town crier work, right? So town crier work was never a high paying activity or what have you. But I discovered that I enjoyed doing the work 
And yet when the pandemic came around and people were locked in their homes, I thought, well, geez, you know, all these drive-by birthdays and so on, why don't I offer to go out on the street curbside and give them a proclamation for their 40th birthday or what have you? People loved it. The return for me was awesome. I felt really good about doing that kind of work. The best work I've ever done as a town crier in terms of the benefit that it gave me, feeling good about it. Humans feel good about giving things away. And giving things is as important to the giver as it is to the recipient. I get huge joy out of that. Right. Another aspect of your new book that you go into in detail is something you call the gift economy. And in a sense, UBI is like a prime example from the nation inward as an example of that gift economy writ large. Yeah, that can be the only explanation I can come up with for $500 a month turning people's lives around is the idea that, wow, maybe I have value. Maybe I could do something with this. Maybe I could actually go out and buy the suit that I could never otherwise afford or or buy that secondhand 12-year-old car so I can get a job. And I just want to backtrack a bit because you're 39 years old with life expectancy at the time, somewhere between 80 and 85, you're looking at 40 years ahead of you. Most people would not even conceive of the possibility of what you not only conceived, you actually did. So I'm curious to know, at the age of 39, and we're talking now around the year 2000, give or take? Yeah. Okay. Not that far back. You thought you could carry on for the rest of your life without too many deep concerns. Hmm. I guess I had the benefit at the time of knowing that back then, my skills were still in pretty high demand. So if, for example, I suddenly found myself getting stuck in a bind, I could always go back and do some work for people or what have you, work that I knew I could enjoy and top things up. Back in 2000, 2004, I was not earning 10000 a year. When I retired, as it were, my income was still pretty good. Right. Because I was still getting a lot of contract work and I would be writing software that was out there on the internet and had money coming in from that. It declined. It declined very rapidly and my outgoing expenditures declined very rapidly too. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have cable. I don't travel on vacation and so on. And a lot of people are going, whoa, you've given up a whole lot. There's no way I'm giving up that. Right. And fair enough. But I really decided what was it that was making me happy? What was it that I needed? And I just simply made a choice. And it's not for everyone. I made a choice that, you know what, rather than going on vacation and having a cell phone, I'd rather have more time to myself in order to pursue projects that I wanted to do, like, say, writing a book. That takes a lot of time. (laughs) Absolutely, it does. And I've got two of you sitting here, and I know that I've worked with both of you, either editing or doing audio work with the both of you, reading your material. I know what it takes for me to just produce a 40-minute podcast, let alone write a book. And this is exactly why I'm asking the question, in part, because... There's such a variance out there. Friends that I've known for decades, you know, dinner parties, you talk, you have these discussions. And it's really interesting to me to see how varied the amounts are relative to income as to what people think they need in order to get through life. And for one person, you say a million dollars and they say a million dollars, I can live two lifetimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another person, a million dollars, like I might run out of that in six years. Yeah. yeah, right. So it comes down to, like you say, it's a personal choice. How much do you value stress in your life? What is your health worth? Yeah. And am I living a balanced life? No, I don't think I am because I think that in many ways I have ignored my consumer and my investor probably a little too much. Right. I think twice before... I don't buy a cup of coffee on the street when I'm just feeling, oh, I'll just have a coffee or something. I don't eat out. I don't go clothes shopping and so on. I wear things right down. Not because I feel that it's wrong, but because I feel that it's not worth it to me. That's not of interest to me. And yet, in many ways, I think, you know, I'm denying myself a few pleasures. I'm still looking for that balance. Still playing with that. Yeah, but ultimately you're choosing. I guess what I'm essentially saying in the book is that we should have the right to make that choice. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, in the time of COVID, we have all been put in that position in the sense of having more time on our hands, in some respects, having to expend less money 
Hmm. Okay. And people actually enjoyed that part of it and felt this is good. This is a good thing. Right. right? But we've also had to think, well, when this situation, this pandemic is done, where are we then? Do we just go back to the old normal? What does the new normal look like? So I want to go back to the question about the future. Right now, the talk among left-wing pundits especially is about inequality, income inequality, etc. So UBI would go some ways towards correcting that. But if this idea is just simply ignored and we just carried on as normal, quote-unquote, what do you think the future would look like? What is the worst-case scenario? What are we looking at if these kinds of ideas of reevaluating our values are just kind of ignored? Yeah, that's a good question because a lot of the talk now is about the billionaires out there, mm-hmm. the people that are well on their way to becoming trillionaires, mm. and some of them based on the pandemic, not yeah, just in right. spite of, right. but because of. Yep. And I think that one curious thing, the, the second book was actually finished in March of 2020. I'd finished the manuscript, headed off to the editor, pandemic hit, it came right back. Okay, the whole context has changed. And in fact, one of the fun things I play with in the book now, as it stands, is I have these what I call pandanecdotes, <laughs> where it's a direct learning from the pandemic, just what you talked about. Suddenly, we're reevaluating our time. We're at home. Hey, we could actually work from home. Why do we have office buildings? Hey, I've got a lot of time on my hands because this CERB is paying me 2000 a month. I've got to clean out my closet. I've got to be spending more time with my kids. It's shaken up our world a bit. And so you asked about what the future is going to look like if we go back to the new normal. I think we're going to be racing to make up the economic losses. We're going to be doubling down on all of that stuff. And climate change is again going to be the thing forefront of everybody's mind. To me, it never stopped being number one. No, absolutely. Although some people say that when the lockdowns happened and so on, our CO2 emissions went down and so on, Mm -hmm. and people had different things to think about and more time to think about climate change and what have you. But yeah, it's not going away. It's the lockdown lifestyle. Is that what you're saying? There's going to be a lockdown lifestyle? Oh, I hope not. Because I think (laughs) the sad part about this double-edged sword of lockdowns and so on is that while it gave us pause about the numeric value system that we live under, it also removed the potential to have those social interactions and so on, which are so important to the other value system, the human values and so on. So it it didn't back up itself very well. And I have to say something that maybe I'm an oddball in this particular case, but it perplexes me when I hear now, almost daily on the news, pent-up demand just revving our engines to go right back into the mess we created in the first place. Yeah. Have you learned nothing over the last year? I'm not saying that you should stop spending or that you should stop doing the normal things, providing and so on. But are you actually eager to get back to the insanity? Yeah. One of the things I wrote about in a blog post was that I had this sort of epiphany that in some respects, the COVID-19 was actually a direct outcome of our economic behaviors. And I say that because I think that if you look at history, if you look at the cholera epidemics, if you look at AIDS and so on, they all flow through the channels or the vectors that we carve in society. So COVID-19, well, did the virus come about because of our economic activity? No, but viruses come up all the time. So what was it that gave us the results that we had? It was the instant travel across the globe, constant travel. It was the reliance on goods and services coming from other countries that we no longer had any resilience to building for ourselves or keeping to ourselves. And these are the kinds of things that were happening, that people being forced to go out and work because they had to have that income coming in. So the virus was spreading in workplaces and so on. I think all of that factored in. Well, I'm glad you're saying it here because I get tired of listening to the news and always them repeating the same things about, let's find out where the source is and let's do this and let's do that. And there's no discussion about what you just said. 
If you wanted a more clear example of medical healthcare well-being values versus economic values, you couldn't see it any plainer than what the government is struggling with right now. Because right. they're constantly doing it, going back and forth. They're saying, in order to keep everybody healthy, we have to shut down and suck it in for a while. Oh, God, no, we've got to open up. Those are the exact values they're struggling with. Right. Yeah. right. That's why I call it insanity. <laughs> but it sounds a lot like the germ versus the terrain medical models. On one side, they're saying it's an invading germ from the outside that's causing the problem. And on the other side, you could say, well, it's the terrain, it's the landscape that we have created that invites in these kinds of pathogens, if you like. And you can think about that from a socioeconomic viewpoint as well those yeah. paradigms. Yeah, yeah. What I get from you to Andrew, and I've got it from you for years now, is a certain kind of burning mission that comes out of you around these ideas of UBI and gift economies and reevaluating our values. Where does that impulse come from in you? Where does that emotional urgency come from? Hard to say. At a guess, I've never been asked that before, but my first impulse might be that I am demonstrating some of the fervor of the convert, perhaps, because I was so based in mathematics and science when I went to university. That was what I studied. When I went to university, I said, I will never write another essay ever again in my entire life. I'm done. I am going to be producing work that is either right or wrong, not yeah. subject to the whims of somebody evaluating it. And it turns out, oddly enough, when I went to the University of Waterloo, that I probably spent as much time in the theater as I did in the math and computer sciences building. So I was already being set up right then for, hey, maybe numbers aren't the answer to everything. And I hadn't appreciated, perhaps, the aversion that I had to consumerism from a very early age. So I guess I just decided, whoa, there is something very wrong here. I did not have all the answers. Numbers and rational thought does not have all the answers. We're missing something here. And one of the things I am always trying to be aware of in my writing is that I am not trying to fervently push this opposite value system as being the answer. I think that what we really need is to right the imbalance, if you were, and give it the prominence that it should have. One of the early working titles of the book was Trumping Our Survival. It had nothing to do with Trump, of course, but it was the idea that numbers are constantly trumping any of our other values. You think, well, uh, yeah, happiness is important, well-being is important, but at the end of the day, we've got to meet the bottom line. So if it comes to that, these are being pushed aside. Now, before we wrap this sort of segment up, part one of three, is there anything about UBI that maybe we haven't asked you about that you'd like to... Um, Expound on? Yeah, or raise as an issue or an idea? I, I don't think so. I think okay. that it's important to recognize that humans have an innate desire to be productive. They have an innate desire to do things that benefit other people, that move their community forward, that establish community ties and working together as a team. And so I don't think it's a question of getting more leisure time. In fact, one of the things they struggled with in the early 20s and 30s, they had a great fear, in fact, that humanity was headed towards more leisure time and this was going to be a problem mm -hmm. because we weren't going to know what the heck to do with ourselves. I don't think that's what basic incomes are all about, whatever, at all. I think the way to wrap your head around it, to my way of thinking, is to just look at it in Canada in the healthcare sense. We don't give a second thought about universal health care. Why should we give a second thought about where our next meal is going to come from? It's not a question of moving money from the rich to the poor necessarily. It's raising the floor. It's just setting a new base level where we all know we're going to eat. We all know we're going to have something to look after ourselves when we're 60 and 70 and so on. Mm -hmm. So we don't worry about that anymore. We'll develop right. different worries, I'm sure. We're human. And now, if people want to support this idea, I know there are organizations that are pushing for this. How can people kind of support the idea? It's very difficult to sell the idea to people who are opposed to it right now because most of them want to see the numbers. And even pilot projects, no matter how successful they are, 
they're operating in isolation. They're pilots. Yeah. They don't show the full benefit of what could happen. And so right now, Canada is struggling with setting up a new pilot. It was only four, six years ago, something, PEI voted unanimously to offer it across the whole province. Really? Yeah, oh, every party, cross party. Really? They all said, we're going to set up a basic income, but they couldn't afford it. They needed federal assistance to make it happen. Oh. And the Fed said no. Well, right now, due to the nature of where we are as a Canadian society, because of the pandemic, because of everything else, there's actually bills, a private member's bill, Bill C-273, in front of the parliament right now, mm -hmm. being supported by various parties saying, let's set up a pilot project. They're not saying let's set up basic income. They're saying let's gather some real data on this. Mm -hmm. There was a conservative senator, Hugh Siegel, who set up a project in Ontario under the Kathleen Wynne government. It was running for two years. It involved a number of communities. It showed some great promise. It was immediately shut down by the incoming government because that's what governments do is they shut down whatever the previous government had, no matter what side they were on. Right. Right. So I think what we can do as a general public is we can get informed about basic income and say, hey, let's let this pilot go ahead. Let's see what happens in Prince Edward Island when everyone has a basic income. And then we can make a call on it. And if you're serious about it, don't wait for the politicians to make the decisions. Yeah. Well, Act pol on it. politicians will follow your decision. Right, that's what I meant. Yeah. So for you listeners out there who are going, this was a great interview. I really enjoyed this interview. And what's coming up in part two, let's establish what's coming up in part two. What do you think we should focus on in the book next that will give us some fertile ground for discussion? I think we might want to look at this concept of, you mentioned gift economy. Right. What is a gift economy? Because I think for my discovery, it wasn't what I thought it was. I think that gift economy in terms of people think of Airbnb, they think of sharing, they think of everything being for free. I don't think it's about that at all. I think that would be a great thing to hit on. Cool. Thank you, Andrew. This has been great for part one. It has. And Andrew, before we leave, is there anything you want to mention to people listening with regards to any blogs, websites, and so on that you have that uh, people could access now if they want to? Thevaluecrisis.com is the central URL, if you will, for the first book, and it tries to link into everything to do with the second book. Certainly before the end of the year, it will be out, and they will be able to find out about it there. But there's blogs and so on, and, and yeah, just ways to explore those ideas, comments. Always welcome to be hearing feedback. TheValueCrisis.com. And comments are always welcome on the SIL podcast as well. Absolutely. We have an audio button for commentary. and Hey, you, you don't even have to type. They can just rant. Just rant as much as you want yep. about UBI or anything else. And we might even use it on a podcast. Anyway, <laughs> Andrew, thanks very much. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. Part two coming up. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.